Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Hold the Mustard, where we talk about all things hospitality and food with leaders in the industry. And even though many of us are stuck at home right now, there's still plenty of hospitality happening. Of course, we all still got to eat, right? So I'm your host, Mark Serkin, founder of Dinable, and today we're going to learn about a part of the food industry which was honestly a total mystery to me before I met my guest, uh, and I think maybe is kind of a mystery to a lot of you out there as well. It's really easy to forget that a lot of detailed scientific work goes into the food supply chain. And our guest today is Peter Waring, an expert in food mycology and food microbiology, food safety, and hazard analysis. So Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. So I'm a food safety specialist. Uh, I go back quite a few years. Um, in my last job, I used to work for a company called Leatherhead Food Research. And in that job, you know, you, you were, it was a member-based organization, so you'd get inquiries from all sorts of people from the food industry. And that's pretty much what I do in, in my job now where I work on my own. So I get clients from all sorts of food industry bases, small and big, and I answer questions about food safety, uh, about food hygiene, things like that. Um, uh, it, it, it can be any particular question. Some food's gone moldy. I'm going to change the process. What do I have to do? Um, I've heard about this online. What did, how does this affect me? So I'm kind of like a jack of all trades, really. I, I kind of answer questions on all sorts of things and give it a go, really. That's so interesting. It's, as I said, when we were getting started, it's a part of the industry that I really n knew nothing about before we met. Um, so there's, there's two words that popped on your LinkedIn profile uh, to me before, before we even spoke, and those were food mycology and microbiology. And I really had no idea what those terms meant as it related to the food supply chain. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, I certainly can. Yeah. So food microbiology is really the big umbrella term for everything, you know, as you call it, bug related, as, you, as you'd say, micro, little microorganisms. It can be everything from pathogens like salmonella that make you unwell to things like yeast and mold that don't make you unwell, but make your food spoil. So if you've got a, if you've got a yeast in a soft drink, it would make it go gassy and it would blow up. But of course, yeast are used to make beer. They're used to make um, bread uh, and, and things like that and wine and so on. Um, and molds, um, they, they, they're the sort of things that give you a little furry coating on, on foods. And again, in the wrong place on bread, you don't want it. But on cheese, you might, you might eat brie cheese, for example, or you might eat camembert or, or in the UK, we have stilton cheese and they're all what we call mold ripened cheese. So in some cases, they're things that actually do good to, to the food. And that's kind of that side of it. Um, and food mycology really is a specialist term which really talks about just the yeast and molds that occur in foods. So it's, it's a subdivision of the, you know, the, the, food, the food microbiology term, as, as, it, as it were. So it's all about molds and about yeast. Yeast are the little things we said that um, are used in food fermentation and molds usually they're not wanted but sometimes some foods actually have molds in them and, and we want the molds to be there um some salamis for example have molds on them and they're mold ripened in, in that way uh, that, that's something that i kind of is easy, easy to forget right so sometimes you're encouraging the growth of of these you know the the bugs so to speak and other times your job is to get rid of them yeah that's right i mean for example that's why you know milk in the fridge doesn't last very long but if you ferment it with a, a lactic acid bacterium, it turns into yogurt. Or if you do other things to it, you turn it into cheese. And that's how, you know, man many, many years ago made this perishable commodity milk last a lot longer by letting it go sour 
to make yogurt or making it go sour and then solidifying it to make cheese. And that's really what it's all about. Interesting. So do you, do you think somebody just left the milk out at some point thousands of years ago and a light bulb went off? Absolutely. That's exactly what sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, what, what, what he calls like ethnobiologists, you know, people that kind of study old man, early man. Yeah, they reckon that's exactly what happened. And in the same way, they think that um, they think that people discovered that smoke was a very good preservative when they hung up hunks of meat in, in their huts overnight with a fire and they found the meat didn't spoil or whatever it was didn't spoil as quickly as it would have done if it was hung outside because the smoke had had knocked out the bacteria or whatever it was that was making it making it um, become spoiled sure. yeah i think all these things are complete complete accidents <laughs> it's funny the way that happens soy sauce is the same in in japan it's exactly the same sort of thing probably all of them accidental fermentations got it so there's another part of your uh, i guess your toolkit that's interesting to me. So I know what the words hazard analysis mean, but I don't quite know what they mean in the context of what you do. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a kind of a, a very well-defined sort of process. So instead of just letting things happen haphazardly, we say, okay, we're going to make this food. What are the hazards in the ingredients in the food? What are the potential hazards from the actual process? Do I actually get rid of that hazard or do I make that hazard worse? And sometimes you do. Um, what control measures can I use to get rid of that hazard or to, or to stop it from occurring if it hasn't occurred, but it might occur? And then how do I know I've controlled those hazards? What, what measures do I use? Do I look at it? Do I measure it? Do I record it? What do I do to know that I've, I've, I've controlled those hazards? And then um, how do I know that I'm doing that consistently all the time to make sure that today's batch of food is going to be exactly the same as yesterday's batch of food? So... You know, that, that's, that's kind of what hazard analysis is. Uh, on, on the last point of it, of course, is who's going to eat that food? So, you know, food I make for you or me, that can be not made to such stringent conditions as food that's going to go into a hospital for someone who's uh, on a life support machine or maybe a small baby or someone who's got an allergy or something like that, where the control measures have got to be much more strict because those people have got um, a vulnerability which would be affected if if they ate food that you or me would find perfectly acceptable. Makes sense. So Peter, uh, related to hazard analysis and, and kind of the general work you're doing in food microbiology and mycology, what kind of businesses do you work with and what do you do for them? I work with all sorts of businesses, very little ones, startups. I work with small, medium-sized businesses, some multinationals as well. Um, they could be retailers, they could be caterers, food manufacturers, ingredient suppliers sometimes even trade and regulatory bodies as well. And depending on what they are, it could be any sort of question. So a startup would say, I want to make this food. My, my mother makes this fantastic sauce. I want to make the same thing. How do I do that? And you've got to guide them through how it's not quite as simple as turning something they make in their kitchen into something you make in a bigger factory. Or, or a company comes along and says, we're going to change the process uh, because um, we we're getting reports that this product is a bit overcooked and the consumer wants it to be a bit more lightly flavored. We've got some nice ingredients in there and they're not coming through. We're killing them off. What can we do? So then you do a technical analysis and you say, okay, well, these are the bugs you've got to kill. 
this is the control measures you've got to do to kill those bugs. You're actually over-processing it by a factor of twofold. So you can, you can knock the time or the temperature down on your, on your, on your, um, on your control process and you'll still have a perfectly safe product, but it won't actually be as overcooked as it was. And so those are kind of a couple of examples of, of what I do. It's interesting to think about, uh, you know, in these, in these large factories that, that produce some of these items we see on the grocery store shelves, that is small tweak to the process. You know, they, they take two seconds out of the uh, cooking, you know, the, the cooking time, and it affects the texture or the flavor or uh, the shelf stability or anything like that on the food. Uh, and it's something I never really thought about until, until speaking with you. I think it's so interesting. Yeah, it, 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 it is. It's, um, you know, the food industry gets a lot of bad press, you know, they, preservatives, various things. They say it's not like, you know, at home. It's not as simple as that. If, if you want something to have a long shelf life, which they do, um, you know, as a, as a producer, you do, because otherwise you can't sell it. As a consumer, I don't want something with a five minute shelf life. It's got to be enough to get it home and stay in my fridge for a week or so you've got to do a lot of things to make sure that that actually happens. And at the same time, I want to make, sh I want to make sure that the, the food still tastes as good as if my mother had made it sort of thing, you know, it, and that's the, that's the, that's the balance between um, the two sides of it. How do you make sure it's safe, but how do you sh make sure it still tastes as good as it would do if you'd made it in your own kitchen? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So I'm curious about uh, something you just said, there a minute ago that about kind of the, you know the, the startup maybe there's an amazing sauce that a restaurant or or your mother makes and somebody has the idea of putting it on the grocery store shelf why is it why, why does it almost never come out the way you expect and why, why is it so hard to make that transition that's a really good question mark um that's a really good question because when you're making it in a restaurant uh, or at home you're generally putting a little bit of salt in it, a little bit of pepper in it to give it some flavor and you're cooking it as lightly as you can. When you want to give it a, what do you want to put it through uh, the, 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 food, the food supply chain? It's got to be processed. It's got to go into distribution. It's got to go to distribution warehouse. It's got to go to the retail store, the grocery store, wherever it's going. It's then got to go home and it's then got to stay in the consumer's fridge which probably won't be running at five degrees C like a good fridge will be. It probably runs eight degrees C or something. You, you factor in all those things and you realize that actually that the, there are things in there that could grow um, that under normal circumstance in the restaurant, you cook it, you eat it within two hours, those bugs don't grow. But because we're looking at something with maybe a two week shelf life to get it through the retail chain, suddenly those bugs can actually start to be important. And, and one really good example is um, when people want to make a sauce or, or they, actually no they want to make something like oh herbs in oil or garlic in oil they want to do fresh herbs in oil fresh garlic in oil I get I've had that inquiry so many times it's one of those things where I go uh oh no that's not good because if you can do fresh herbs fresh garlic in oil in, in the restaurant as long as you get it and you put it away in the fridge bring it out again or whatever or you or you do it once a day and you throw it but to put it through the retail chain, there's a particular bug in there called Clostridium botulinum, which grows under conditions where there's no air. And if you put a fresh product into an oil that's basically got no air in it, this bug then starts to grow. Um, and it's on things like fresh produce, you know, um, under normal circumstances, it's not harmful because 
because it it doesn't occur in that product in, in, in the way well it doesn't occur um it wouldn't grow and cause a problem in the product because you kind of you use the ingredients you cook them and you eat them straight away but if you happen to what we call abuse that product which you would do if you if if, if you left it at the wrong temperature and so on then these things can happen and, and then um there can be a problem and there have been occasions where that has happened so that's a that can be a problem so the the most common question it sounds like that, that you're getting or a lot of the, the common questions you're getting and challenges you're seeing are around shelf stability and kind of people having having assumptions that things will be shelf stable that really they they just aren't you have to you have to make adjustments to make that happen is that right yes you do that's right and and, and in general what happens is when we do um when we do what's called a shelf life study or or, or sometimes if if we're worried about a uh, a harmful organism we do what's called a challenge study where we actually put the harmful organism in the food to see if it could or can't grow in that food because let's say salmonella doesn't occur very often in food but if it did occur it could be disastrous so how do we check whether or not salmonella can grow in food or not when it doesn't occur in food well we just put it in the food i mean i don't do that because i don't have a lab but the bigger labs will do that they put it in the food and they and they put it under the conditions that the consumer is going to store it under and see whether or not this bug would actually grow or not and that's kind of one of the things they do it's a, it's a really good transition into yeah. what i was thinking next which was I mean, what's the deal with these best updates on grocery products? How, how do we get yeah. those? That was, and, and actually, Mark, yeah, that was, that was what I was going to lead around to. Okay, so that's fine. Um, what people don't realize is when we design uh, a product and we design the shelf life of a product, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, what's the indicator organism that we don't want to be there? It might be spoilage, might be a very slow-growing, harmful organism, but grows incredibly slowly, like listeria. And there are legal considerations for how much listeria you can have in food. Well, you look at it and you say, okay, when it gets to the point where it could be harmful, or when it gets to the point where there will be spoilage and you can detect it, the mold will have grown, the yeast will have grown. You say, okay, that's, that's the bad point. Okay. What we do then is we say, okay, well, we'll give that product a shelf life of roughly 70% of the, of the ultimate shelf life so that we build in about a 30% leeway. So that in other words, even if the consumer abused the product at home, kept it in the fridge for a day or so longer, we should still be within our safety considerations. So if, if we find that a product would be um, not good after 10 days, we give it a seven day shelf life. And that's how we make sure the consumer is never going to uh, have a problem with, with, with the food. And that's, how to, that's kind of the balancing act that the, that the, um, that the technical people either in the lab or, or the technical people in the food industry or the technical people like me kind of juggle around and work out exactly how we do that so the first question we ask is do you want the product chilled do you want it at amb room temperature ambient that makes a different consideration as to how you process the food you know um is it going to be a drier food it's going to be a wetter food do you want preservatives in it don't you want preservatives in it do you want it to be heavily cooked or do you want it to be lightly cooked and then all these things, you, you balance them together, work out what, what particular bugs could, the microorganisms could occur. And then you say, right, this is how we actually do what we need to do. And then you go back to the startup and you say, sorry, you really can't have a 20 day shelf life on your product. The maximum you're going to get is 10. And that's it, because there's no physical way of doing it unless you put a lot of salt in the product or sugar in it. 
or you put some vinegar in it to preserve it and so on. You know, all those things can be put into balance it. But unless you do all those things, it's not going to happen. Another good example, actually, is people say, oh, we don't like the customer doesn't like the taste of vinegar. You know, it's, it's very sharp. We, we're going to try this with, uh, with, with lemon juice. I say, oh, OK. But lemon juice, although it might give you a nice flavor, and a nice light flavor, it's still acidic, it doesn't work in the same way that vinegar does to act as a preservative. So it's not as effective at any given level of acidity, what we call the pH of the product. There's a whole technical consideration that I can't go into now because it's too complicated but essentially lemon juice is nowhere near as good a preservative as vinegar is at any given level of concentration it just doesn't work so I'm always very wary of substitution of uh, you know vinegar with lemon juice unless you've got other preservatives in there as well or unless you're prepared to considerably shorten the shelf life of your product. Sure, it makes total sense. And this goes right back to why, you know, grandma's amazing sauce just doesn't taste the same when it's off of the store shelf, right? It, it needs more salt, Ex more sugar or whatever to, to make it more stable. That's exactly right. So what I recommend to people is if you still want to use lemon juice, well, well just put a dash of vinegar in there as well, about half a percent, whatever it is, uh, we can calculate how much you need to put in there to give it the preservative function. There's a special calculation. Again, all these technical things we don't need to worry about. You can put that calculation in and you say, oh, that's okay. Yeah, that, that will work. So you can have your mostly lemon juice to give you the flavor, but please just put a little drop of uh, vinegar in there as well, because that's what's going act, to actually act as a preservative in this product, not the lemon juice. So it's kind of, again, it's a, you know, it's a very fine balancing. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's something that uh, I think from, from a perspective of somebody with food allergies and restrictions, it's interesting to think about how these, how the ingredients lists get built out for these products uh, and some of the other factors that go into making the product shelf stable aside from just delivering on something that's delicious and that makes sense for, for the market they're creating. So what, when, you're, when you're advising on a product, Peter, what do you take into account from that perspective of whether it's allergen safety or you know, if it's supposed to be a vegan product and things like that, and you come up against something where you kind of need to add some component that may not, that may not line up? Does that, does that make sense, that question? It does. It does. Now, that, 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 is, that is a difficult thing, isn't it? Um, you'd have to look for something that was compatible um, with the particular type of uh, uh, customer that, that, that wanted to buy the product. If it was vegan, you, you've obviously got to stay away with um, you've got to stay away with any ingredients that might have been made from an animal, for example. And, and so, I mean, it's not um, it's not an example of one of those from the point of view of food safety, but lecithin, uh, for example, comes from animal products, so you can't have that. Um, yeah, you, you, that, that's, that's something you would have to be considerate of. Uh, allergens are, are, are a big issue in, in that sense, because some of the, let's say, some of the, um, some of the additional ingredients, not necessarily preserve, there wouldn't be preservatives, but they might be ingredients you use to give body or or organoleptic, you know, the, the flavor, not the flavor, the, the mouthfeel for the product. Some of those things might be um, of allergenic potential. It might be from soya, for example, or, or there might be another type of flour which you're using to give a particular um, characteristic, which um, 
which you which you need to do because something else has been taken out of it so makes sense it's it's all a balancing act thinking about food safety peter uh obviously we're in the midst of of this global pandemic because of the coronavirus how do you think this is going to change how businesses and people approach food safety in the future that's a very very good question again um at its most basic level it's really highlighting the fact that we need to just be very careful about food hygiene because it's all as i'd call it kind of florence nightingale stuff it's all washing your hands keeping yourself clean and if you if, if you contaminate things wash your hands it's all about that because a lot of it is about hand hygiene there is the droplet spread but nonetheless a lot of it is all about hand hygiene in in many ways it's exactly the same as when you've got the, the gut-borne virus like rotavirus or norovirus which cause big problems because they can be droplet borne on vomit and they then occur and they land on a surface and, and we you know and there's a technical word for the surface, like it's called a fomite which is you know the door handle the light switch and so on and if it lands on that and you touch it and you get it on your hands and then you eat something with uh, contaminated hands you get a problem um, so that's a given and that should always be there um, I think supply chain issues are, are also the sort of uh, issues as well because we need to look at where our supply chains are and our integrity of our supply chains supposing you can't get an ingredient now because that country is locked down or there's issues getting things out of the port what alternative ingredient do I need to use now and is that ingredient uh, clear for use in my factory is it okay have i gone through the safety protocols with respect to allergens and so on um you know so those are the things we've got to be aware of as well you know how does it affect our supply chain and how do we make sure we've got business continuity and again obviously lastly the social distancing side of um uh working which obviously we're doing as consumers on the outside of a factory but inside a factory that makes even bigger problem because many times people are working quite closely with each other and sometimes even working you know two people holding this handling the same piece of machinery at the same time so that's that's quite a problem you know to make sure you've got uh effective social distancing within a factory as well sure this is this is truly a situation everybody is is so affected by this that we're all having to find ways to innovate in in our daily lives and it's uh you know the, n nobody is spared for that i think no that's uh, so, right uh so peter you've uh kind of thinking about food safety again you you've been an expert witness before in situations that required it what kind of situations call for that and how have you helped so that's that's interesting yeah um it's been all sorts of cases actually i i've worked with on business to business cases where one an ingredient manufacturer has sold something to the second company and the second company's claimed that the other company had a contaminated ingredient and my job has been depending on which side i'm on to see whether or not that contamination could have occurred or not or whether the company itself the manufacturer contaminated their process um in another case because uh, a caterer or restaurateur or a hotelier uh, caused food poisoning in some cases leading to the death of a, a unfortunate person due to food poisoning and my job then has been to either to stand on the side with the local authority and make sure that we understand how it occurred and how, how to prevent it in future and why did it happen and on the other side sometimes when i've been working with the actual 
company that's caused the food poisoning to make sure that the uh, that the local authority, you know, effectively the legislature, the, the, the legal side, the people who are prosecuting don't go overboard because, you know, we look at it and we say, yes, yes, that pate did actually have uh, a harmful bacterium in it. And that person did get food poisoning at that wedding reception. We, we can accept that, but we can't accept the fact that the, that the, that the kitchen was dirty um, because the, the types of things you found in the kitchen would be found normally if people are prepping up lettuce and uh, vegetables, you know, and you're, you're sampling at the wrong time. So you can't say that because, you know, if you'd have sampled in a different way, you'd have said, no, that's okay. They sample while people are actually still preparing food. And if you're chopping up salads and vegetables, as you know, they come from the soil. So they're going to have soil borne organisms on them. That's what they found. So they said, oh, it must be a dirty kitchen. No, no, it's not. Just sample it after they've cleaned the kitchen down. You'll find it's clean. The reason for the problem was they didn't cook the pate properly. That was the reason, you know, so don't, so in that case, you're what's called mitigating. You're making sure that the local authority doesn't get a bit overboard and, and prosecute them on three claims when it's really only one claim. Sure. So you, your role really in that situation is to come in and kind of be the voice of reason, it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and in one other case, which was an allergen issue, the, the takeaway uh, had been sampled by the local authority and shown that yes there was cross-contamination of peanuts uh, where there shouldn't have been peanuts obviously that's a really bad allergen to, to have it's particularly bad in the UK um, they, they, they agreed so they pleaded if as we'd call it that they, they agreed yes yes we did this problem so the local authority asked me to come in and say okay well they've agreed to that so where how could it have happened um, what, what did they do to make this happen, do you think? And how can they prevent that happening in future? You know, in other words, they've they pleaded it, so they'll get a reduced sentence or a reduced fine. And they've said, please help us because we don't know what we're doing. How can you help us? And so I've gone in and basically given them the advice and worked out why they caused the problem. And then on the other side, how they can prevent that problem from occurring in the future. So that's 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 a lot nicer in a way because you're not looking for evidence to kind of prosecute someone you're just looking for evidence to help them which is a it's a kind of a nicer way to do things rather than the normal more it's more adversarial yeah it's it's really great when you can actually be helpful rather than just pointing fingers at people so mo moving over from from the courts to i guess the uh the public life you've worked with some celebrity chefs in your career how did that happen and what did you, what did you do with them well, that was that was that was also very interesting. Uh, that was again when I was at uh, my old company, Leatherhead Food Research, because they they'd obviously got a bigger media presence than I have. And um, in one case, uh, I was working with um, uh, a guy who's a friend of um, Jamie Oliver, who I'm sure you've, you've heard, a guy called Jimmy Doherty, and um, he was researching. Uh, he was doing interesting programs on unusual foods, and in that case, we were looking at what's called we was. Uh, dry aged beef and dry aged beef is actually like a, a really high quality type of beef like Aberdeen Angus which is hung for up to 45 days uh, to ripen it to give it extra flavour um, and you actually let it go mouldy and the moulds actually attack the meat and they actually ripen the meat by softening the meat and producing additional flavours in the meat to make it much more succulent and tender and, and sweet tasting and so as a microbiologist who had access to all the, the, you know, the microscopes and everything else. We, we took a side of beef and we put it down the microscope. We, in a, like a, a, 
uh, a low power microscope gives you a nice stereo image. We looked for these molds growing on the surface and, and, and saw how they were, what they were doing to kind of visually represent um, what was happening there, that, which, was, which was fascinating. And in the other case, it was um, uh, very much alluding to what we said at the beginning of the recording, where how do, how do manufacturers understand how to get the right shelf life for a product? Why do they say consume by so-and-so and then eat with or eat within three days of opening, that sort of thing? And so there I was explaining how we did this thing called a challenge test, where we actually put the harmful organisms in the food and then we store them under different conditions you know, under ideal conditions and under, let's say, conditions which the consumer might be doing in the home, you know, the worst conditions they might be under, and then looking for tracking the organisms with time to see how they actually grow um, and to see whether they reach the numbers that we know would be harmful. And so that was kind of what I, what I did there. And that was, again, a, a sort of a fun thing. So they're, we're in the lab with our white coats on and uh, we're doing some uh, experimentation and they're recording you at the same time, which is great fun. That's great. So are those uh, recordings out there in the world that we can we can kind of see you on the, on these uh, episodes that, that were thrown out there? Um, yes, they should be. Now, the, the one with Chris Bavin, that's with Chris Bavin and Greg Wallace. I can't remember what the name of the program is, but yeah, it would be. I mean, um, it probably happened about three or four years ago now that the the Jimmy Doherty one was probably a couple of years before that, I think. Um, they should be out there. Yeah, if you look for... Um, I guess if you look for Jimmy Doherty and dry aged beef, you might find it. And if you look for shelf life and uh, uh, Chris Bavin or, or Greg Wallace, you, you might find it as well. It's a very tiny clip. You know, I think they were in the second case, they were there all day from about 10 in the morning to about six in the evening. And I was on screen for about 90 seconds. <laughs> well, we'll see if we, if we can maybe track them down on YouTube or something. So Peter, uh, what's the most re rewarding part of what you do? I think it's working with clients to solve their technical problems. You know, um, it's very much, somebody said this to me a while back and it's actually true. He said, you're like a detective. When I explain what I did, somebody said, you're like a detective. You're like, we have, we have a program over here called um, Silent Witness um, where they're looking, it's a forensic program, you know, where they do what forensic scientists don't do and they go out and solve crime. They don't, they just take the samples normally, but these guys do more uh, with, with Amelia Fox and so on. It's, it's a great program. So you're looking for, you're sifting through clues. You're, um, you're, so sometimes it's been described as forensic microbiology because you're, you're looking for what's happened. You're looking for the evidence of why it's happened. You're looking for where it could have come from. And then you're trying to put it together and, and very much looking for a crime scene. I, I went into a factory once where we were looking at uh, uh, yeast growing in jam, which was causing, uh, when you're making donuts and you're having jam inside of your donut, it's pumpable jam. So you set the jam, but then you what's called break the set by stirring it to break the set. The pectin's broken, and so it becomes sloppy. Otherwise, you couldn't pump it. We had to effectively chase the yeast through the factory to work out where it had gone because it was just causing so many problems. You'd have a two and a half litre tub of jam, which would which would have a, a you know like a, a it would blow the lid off of, of, of the tub because there was so much gas being produced. And we were trying to work out exactly where it came into the factory and where it was causing the problem. Um, so that's, that's great fun. There's, there's probably a pretty thrilling episode of uh, Sherlock Holmes in, in that story somewhere, right? Oh, I'm sure there probably would be, yeah, for the, for the more techie sort of people amongst us. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So 
kind of on, on the same thread of that question, what would you say is the most unique request or, or customer interaction that you've had in your career? And how did you support it? That was, that's again, a very good question again. Um, yeah, um, we had um, the, the European Union about um, 10, 15 years ago, about maybe 10, 10 years plus ago, changed the law on um, the levels of a certain harmful toxin called aflatoxin, which is produced by a mold um, in food products. And it's very, very harmful. It causes cancer at very, very, very low levels. It is actually the most cancer or carcinogenic, as we call it, compound known to man. It's incredibly low levels. So we're, we're looking at the legal level is two parts per billion. You know, that's which is incredibly low levels um, and can still cause cancer at sort of levels around that. So they were changing these levels and um, Brazil nut production in, in Bolivia was, was having a problem because just because of the way it's produced. So I had to fly into Bolivia. I had to take a, a single seater plane into the jungle, land on a grass airstrip in the middle of the, in the, middle of the Amazon, and then get on the back of a trials bike, holding on for dear life with a guy riding, driving it up, riding this bike for another hour into the jungle so I could come alongside where the Brazil nut trees were and look at how they were being harvested, and then, and then follow that down the river, down to the factories that were shelling them, and then they were bagging them, and so on. So that was an incredible experience. You know, you see people go and take holidays like that. Well, I got to do that for free. Well, I got to do my, you know, effectively I was paid for to do that, um, you know, to, to go and have this incredible experience in the Amazon jungle, which was, as you can probably tell, one of the most incredible things I've ever done in my life. Wow, what, what an amazing experience. That, thank you for sharing that. Um, so we should probably start wrapping up here, Peter. Uh, as, we, as we wrap up, just given what's going on in the world right now, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that every obstacle we face is an opportunity also. What do you want the world to look like when life starts up again? And, and how do you think what you do will change and adapt for the better? And I know we've talked about that a little bit in the food safety realm, uh, but you know, here, here's another opportunity to talk about that as well. Well, Mark, there's one thing that's been very much highlighted. And I mean, I, I've not been a very active uh, campaigner, but I've certainly had it in, in my mind. And the environment's a big issue. And what we do to the environment is a, and you've only got to look at the fact that the, you know, global pollution levels are going down because of, you know, we're not traveling at the moment. So I just think one thing, we need to be more connected, uh, more human. Uh, you know, it sounds a bad thing to say, more less profit driven, but more in touch with the environmental consequences of what we're doing. I mean, from a very least point of view, we can do a lot of the stuff that we do face to face online. We're doing it at the moment. We don't need to meet face to face, you know. Um, so I don't know. That, that, those are some of the kind of more personal things, really, I think. You know, we I think we just need to look at what we're doing to the environment and um, and see if we can change those because we're not um, we're not we're not doing a lot of good to the world at the moment in, in the way where the whole supply chain is working actually. Yeah, it's, it's such a great point that we can take a, a lot of the lessons we're learning here uh, and, and kind of maintain them, you know, maybe get rid of two days of commuting a week for, for a large portion of the workforce and imagine what that would do to pollution levels in the world. Uh, just That's you know, right. a lot to think about there. That's right. And I think lastly, I think the other thing as well is, which is highlighted with us because we're not very self-sufficient and we've kind of diverted our food production overseas is I think we just need to be a bit more self-sufficient than we are at the moment. You know, we are relying on a, 
on a, on a supply chain that uh, because a lot of the in the UK a lot of the food production is just in time delivery so it's it's like an elastic band that's under stretch and at the moment that elastic band is at the point where it's going to snap sometime you know we hope it doesn't because every day you go to the supermarket there's still food there but it's um it's a worry that those those elastic bands might break and so if we could maybe you know bring production more local again and do we need to have you know year round do we need to eat green beans year round do we not just eat them when they're actually in season in the uk i don't know yeah absolutely that's a it's a great analogy with the elastic band there uh, so peter we're about at the end of our time here uh, can you just share out there with the audience what sort of people you're looking to connect with how people can get in touch with you um so that you know if, if anybody needs your expertise they can find you sure sure so so i semi-retired from my old company two years ago so i deliberately said i'm not gonna have a website so you won't find me on a website you'll only find me on twitter and you'll find me on linkedin but if you look for p wearing food safety ltd limited on on twitter you are sorry on, on linkedin you'll find me um and i i work with everybody really from small businesses as i said startups uh, all the way through to big ones uh, i work with caterers i work with distributors i've done some work yeah with with distributors uh when they've had problems themselves um i do advice like we've been talking about here i do training um i do on-site help i do uh, remote help you know um and if i don't know the answer then generally I, i've got a, a access to a whole load of colleagues and ex-colleagues and, and friends and so on that, that i can join in with so if I, I don't know the answer i can certainly uh, put you in touch with somebody else that can give you the answer you know who's worked in that business or worked in that area of the world for example who knows more about it than i do that's great so i'll put your information in the show notes as well but that's peter waring it's w-a-r-e-i-n-g on linkedin and twitter uh so that's peter, yeah thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today and uh again i'll get your information in the show notes and this is hold the mustard thanks everybody for listening thank, thank you ever so much thanks for listening to hold the mustard we've got a ton of great episodes in store for you if you or anyone you know is interested in being a guest or wants to learn more about Dynable, email me anytime at mark at Dynable.com. That's M-A-R-K at Dynable, D-I-N-E-A-B-L-E.com. Dynable offers technology and services to help event planners optimize opportunities for guest personalization while empowering operators to stay efficient on food cost and waste. Learn more at Dynable.com.